Good evening. Wisdom Eccentrics by Natchang Rinpoche, Chapter 13. The idea of kindness as an illness, with all its attendant concepts of infection and contagion, is highly creative. This manner of expression is a brilliant example of how Tantra turns language on its head. It uses violent rage to describe clarity and sickness to describe health. Sometimes you have to spread the illness of kindness in the guise of a desperado and sometimes in the guise of a tomyore. Chapter 13 Offer of Marriage Oh yeah, you are here again, Rinpoche yawned, but less ostentatiously than usual. You are not married yet, Rinpoche mused. No, Rinpoche, I almost answered, not since yesterday, but thought better of it. What reason? he asked, but not as abruptly as was his usual style. No reason, Rinpoche, it just hasn't worked out that way, as yet. Rinpoche made no comment, and so I thought I'd venture further explanation. There are actually many reasons, but they'd take a long time to explain. It's not that I wouldn't have liked to marry some of the ladies I've known, but with my most important relationship, her parents hated me on sight. Rinpoche burst out laughing at this, but asked, what cause? Being working class, long-haired, being a member of a blues band, you see, they were upper class and he was a brigadier in the army. But you said your father was a major. Yes, Rinpoche, but he was a working class. He was working class and he was a wartime major. He raised himself from the ranks by studying engineering. He wasn't respected by the other officers and Brigadier, Brigadier Dale, although he didn't know my father, would have been one of those officers who would have looked down on him as an officer who was promoted from the ranks. Oh, yeah, Rinpoche sighed with evident sympathy. This is a tomyore. This style also existed in Tibet, and there it was worse. In Tibet, there were many great yogis and sometimes yoginis who came from poor origins. Yeah, so it is, but anyhow... You must marry one day. Rinpoche sat silently for some minutes. He was obviously turning ideas around and eventually he said, You maybe always choose upper class girls? Yes, Rinpoche, I suppose so. Why? Rinpoche asked rather crisply. Well, I suppose I didn't really understand that all the girls from the grammar school would be likely to have parents who would despise me. However, I'd usually be attracted to those girls because they were intelligent and read books. And, well, I went to a secondary school and although there were a few girls there who were bright, it didn't quite work out. Your school was for Tom yours? Not exactly, Rinpoche, just for those who, well, all right, it was a school for idiots, but maybe just unfortunate idiots, and those who worked hard could become intelligent. And you became intelligent? 
Yes, Rinpoche, I stated with conviction. I became intelligent enough to get a first-class honours degree. Good. Maybe now parents will be happy with you. But still, you still remain mostly a Tomyor, so maybe not. Anyhow, it is good that you look for an intelligent woman, because this is very necessary. Rinpoche gazed through me into some kind of distance that was impossible for me to guess at. Yeah, anyhow, Poutrell was never married. He was always wandering in the mountains. Do you know, Rinpoche mused, high mountain meadows ornamented by alpine flowers are the shrine rooms of yogis and yoginis. Gilded ceremonial halls where constipated monastics fart are the shrine rooms of Tomyors. That is why Paltrell wandered in the mountainous regions around Zarchukka. This is why Kunzangdorje never lives in one place. Rinpoche sighed a sigh that seemed to me to betoken contentment. Zarchukka was in Golok, the wild reaches of Tibet which lay to the north of Kham, far away from the central provinces where some sort of order prevailed. Golok was considered barbaric by those who lived in areas where people loved freedom less. Kham was notorious for its brigandage, but however wild Kham was, Golok far exceeded it. It was no place to travel unless you were a yogi, or you packed muskets. Or perhaps better, you were a yogi who packed muskets, such as Dokyantse Rinpoche, the root teacher of Tsarpaltral Rinpoche. Golok was the wild northeast, and the people there were known for two things the bravado with which they vaunted their traditional independence, and their trigger happy disregard for legislation of any kind, no matter from whence it came. The following words from the head of one of the fierce Golok clans may typify their general attitude. To advice of strangers we will not hearken. We obey naught but the heart with which each Golok enters the world. This is why we have remained as free in the past as we are now. We are slaves of none, neither Khan nor Dalai Lama. Our tribe is the mightiest in the land of snows. Our birthright disdains both Chinese and Tibetan and we regard them each with contempt. Once, while staying with Tarchin Rinpoche, I met Tulku Rinpoche, a young lama who fell to talking with me about Golok. It was the land of his birth. He told me that it was notorious both for brigandry and druptobs. He said that there used to be a saying in Lhasa which ran, Even if you're on your deathbed, if you hear there's a man from Golok approaching, you'd better jump up immediately and run away. The indigenous tribes of Golok were not folk who appreciated change much, least of all if it came in the form of impingements from the outside. They classed themselves as tax-exempt with regard to the edicts of the Tibetan government and imposed their own freelance taxation on those fools hardy enough to venture into their land. As an example of this, Tulku Rinpoche told me another story. 
apparently a well-to-do middle-aged Golok, bought a large newfangled Chinese tent to replace his old yak hair model. Soon afterward, he died very suddenly and unexpectedly. The local people had little sympathy for him. All agreed that he had it coming. The old fool. What did he expect buying a Chinese tent? Yeah, so anyway, Rinpoche continued after having surveyed the room as if he'd never seen it before. Paltrow was once making his way through the wild and dangerous region north of Tsar This is a mountainous region of great beauty. Equally beautiful and ferocious, however, were animals which stalked its wooded hills and isolated valleys. Animals not particularly known for their tender, nurturing relationship to people. But this was not the only risk of journeying through such parts. There were bandits. So it was that in these distinctly wild and woolly parts, Paltrow came across an attractive young woman called Ursel Drime. She and her two young children were weeping bitterly. They were in a state of dreadful anguish, huddled under the shelter of a large rock by the side of the mountain track. Paltrow asked what had happened and learnt that Ursel Drime's husband had been mauled to death by one of the huge bears in whose cave the family had inadvertently trespassed. They'd been in search of shelter from a rising gale after having previously been robbed of all their goods by bandits. Paltrell immediately offered his protection as a companion traveller. What direction were you intending to take when the awful events occurred? We're on pilgrimage to Tsar Chuka, the lady replied, although it was difficult for her to speak. But we were robbed by a band of robbers. All our horses and money were stolen. Ursel Drime wept even more at this point. And then my poor husband was killed by a red bear, and now we have nothing, nothing at all. We are destitute with no means to return to our home. It was a terrible sight to witness. Seems you better go with me to Zarchukar because that's where I'm going. I'll look after you on the way. Don't worry. The lady calmed down momentarily on hearing these words, but then burst into tears again. There's no purpose, though, in us going on further to Zarchukar because we know no one there who'd help me there. I should go home, but my home's such a long way away. How can I go there through such dangers? I cannot go on without money or provisions. Neither can I return. She was in floods of tears and seemed inconsolable. Paltrow once more tried to comfort her. You know, I really think you should come to Tsar Chukar with me. I've the feeling that you would do really well there. I know how to beg for alms, even if you don't, so you can follow my example as we travel together. There's to be a great gathering of religious types in Zarchuka. People are going to see Zarpaltrul, so something is bound to work out for you. The woman's eyes widened when she heard the name Zarpaltrul. Really? Zarpaltrul Rinpoche will really be there in Zarchuka. That is the most wonderful news. That's why my husband and I left the caravan. That's why we took the risk of leaving on our own. 
We'd heard that Tsar Rinpoche might be in these parts and we wanted to see him. The lady seemed suddenly elated. I believe I will take your advice after all. You are right, I do not know how to beg, but if I can learn what to do from you, then at least my children will be able to receive Tsar Pautul Rinpoche's blessings. His blessing would be worth more than everything they have lost, even were their mother also to die. Pautul observed Ursel carefully. Her whole demeanour had changed radically since hearing the name Tsar Pautul. Seems you have some connection with this Lama, so I'd be happy to help you find him. Ursel looked radiant, and even her children stopped crying and gazed in wonder at the kindly stranger <coughs> in the ragged sheepskin tuba. She looked down at her children and said, We have travelled for a month on pilgrimage, hoping that we would be able to meet Tsar Pautul Rinpoche just once, and now we have the opportunity. Now it doesn't matter what happens after Tsar Chukar, everything will be fine. So they set out together. They made detours through villages whenever they ran out of food and begged for provisions to take them further. They camped out as they travelled wherever they could find relatively sheltered places. When they slept, Paltrell kept one child in his sheepskin tuba and she kept the other huddled in hers. As the days wore on, Ursel noticed that when there was nothing else to be done, Paltrell would sit motionless with his eyes wide, staring into the sky. He was not one for conversation unless she or the children spoke to him. But when he answered, he was always good-humoured and kind. She felt unusually peaceful and reassured in his company, and her children seemed contented. Paltrell would often carry either one of the children on his shoulders as they walked, and they seemed to take to him rapidly as a substitute father. The grim tragedy of her husband's death weighed less on Ursel than she expected, and she pondered the peculiar naturalness which had settled on them like an invisible mist of benevolence. She pondered on her unusual lack of anxiety in view of the terrible events that had, occur had occurred. But even her pondering didn't seem to hold her mind for long, she seemed content to enjoy the shifting forms of the landscape. Paltrell talked to her a little about impermanence and death as they walked. I have some small knowledge of the passage of the Bardo and I'll perform the required meditation for your husband. Ursel was much relieved by this, even though there was no Lama to perform the rites in the full ritual manner. Paltrell's bardo practice was entirely unorthodox in being silent. It seemed, however, that although his soundless motionlessness didn't resemble anything she knew or understood, it made her and her children confident that all was proceeding as it should. She and her departed husband had both received some religious instructions from time to time during their lives. Although they were not ordained Gurkha Changlo practitioners, they were devoted to the practices they had been given and had persevered in them to the best of their abilities. Increasingly often at the end of a long day's, long day's walk, she and Paltrow sang Padmasambhava's mantra or seven-lined song together. 
Sometimes they simply sat together in silence as the darkness fell. At those times he would tell her a few things about how to let go of thought, and she gradually came to discover that Paltrell had a deeper degree of knowledge in spiritual matters than she had thought. He gave her some simple advice on dream yoga that she could practice each night as she fell asleep and provided her with pieces of knowledge that proved interesting and valuable to her. She began to ask him questions after a while in order to clarify previous teachings she had received and, as they walked, he answered every subject on which she inquired. Moreover, he answered in ordinary language and in the simplest, most direct manner. I must apologise that my explanations are very simple, but the simple approach is all I understand. He gave her suggestions on practice in a manner which suggested that he was merely passing on the teachings he'd heard, but nonetheless he seemed completely clear about everything he described, as if his memory served him more than adequately. He cared for her children as if they were his own and entertained them sometimes when they rested or took meals. By the time they got to Zartuka, her feelings for Paltrell had developed in depth and complexity. Ursa was aware that she was astonishing herself with regard to how she felt about Paltrell. He was actually quite a handsome man under his shaggy coils of torchuk. She'd grown to be very fond of him. She was concerned not only for herself but for the future of her children and it seemed to her that Paltrell might make a good husband. He was her senior in years and not of the same social position as her late husband but he was both knowledgeable and devoted to the teachings. He was also the epitome of kindness and humour. She realised that she had never met such a wonderful person in her life. She was suddenly aware that she had fallen in love with him. After long consideration, she plucked up the courage and proposed marriage to Paltrell. But he shook his head rather sadly. That's not really possible, my dear, but I thank you all the same. You're a good woman. There could be nothing more happy for a vagabond like me to do but become a husband to you and a father to your children. But I am not cut out for such a life and, anyway, I must care for a great number of people in my own way. The lady was clearly disappointed but somehow understood that there was something much more unusual about this strange man than she supposed. She did not pursue her proposal but asked, What's your purpose here in Zarchukar? Will you also go to the Gompa? Paltrow smiled. Yeah, certainly I'll be there. Have no doubt of that. I'll be going to the Gompa tomorrow and promise to meet you there. Take the remains of what we've been offered as alms and find a place for you and your children to sleep tonight. Paltrow looked at her intently and said emphatically, you and your children will be fine. Your devotion and practice will take care of everything. She looked a little bewildered. But what about you? What will you do for accommodation? Paltrell laughed. Oh, me? I'll do what I usually do when I come here. 
Don't you worry about me. If I can't find a good place to put my head down, something will be alarmingly amiss. On that note, they parted. Paltrow made his way to the gomper where he was received with all due ceremony. Ursel and her children went on their way to find somewhere to stay for the night. In their respective accommodations, they engaged in their own duties and practices before attending the teachings. The next day arrived and the preparations for the teachings and public blessing were underway. People were arriving from the outlying districts. Others had arrived some days or weeks previously. Some had travelled tremendous distances to hear Paltrow's teachings and there was a sizeable encampment all around Agompa, eager to receive his blessing. Many Kampa and Golok Lamas were there in their respective encampments, even people from as far away as Utsang. Everyone had brought presents, as would be traditionally expected, and in similar traditional manner they were gathered together by the monks. It was well known that Paltrel never accepted presents. He always gave away whatever he was given, either to those who were in need or to help local craftspeople in religious works. He also gave the gifts to the Gompa. But this time he requested that all the gifts should be gathered together to be at his personal disposal at a future point. The monks were slightly disconcerted by this change in Paltrow. Why had he deviated from his usual exemplary disinterest in offerings? But then he was a very great Lama and there would probably be some good reason behind this uncharacteristic action. Their curiosity was further aroused by the almost unseemly degree of interest he took in the value and quality of the offerings. He appeared to be uncommonly pleased by the way that the gifts were accumulating. One could have been led to believe that Paltrow descended to common acquisitiveness. When Ursel arrived at the Gompa and took her place amongst the crowd gathered there, she could not really see Paltrow's face very clearly. She listened to the teachings in rapt attention, in which she marvelled at the eerie sensation of Paltrow's voice. It was extraordinarily familiar, almost like the old Togden with whom she had travelled to Zarchuka. The teachings seemed unusually easy to understand. She remembered the difficulty she'd experienced in the past when she had attempted to follow such profound teachings. Now it was as if she had heard them all recently and was simply being reminded of what she already knew. Then she came up to receive a blessing. She had some degree of anticipation of the glorious benediction that the touch of Paltrow's hand would confer when it touched the top of her head. But when she looked up to see the face of Paltrow, her mind was so startled that she lost all ability to conceptualise. She found herself in a state of rapt shock. At that moment, she understood all the instructions that Paltrow had given her as they walked together. She realised that Paltrow had given her all the teachings in quintessential form as they walked and that he had just given them all again in full. I'm sorry I turned down your offer of marriage, Paltrow told the lady in a concerned tone, but now you've received my transmission 
and you know the nature of real practice. Although I can't marry you, we will never be parted. Marriage always ends in death, but the marriage of transmission is indestructible. Paltrow snapped his fingers and Ursel's eyes focused again. After a moment of what looked like consideration, he said, Although you have told me that the teachings of old Paltrow are worth more than everything you have lost, you will also need to take care of yourself and your children. With that, he requested the monks to turn over all the collected offerings to the woman, and she was able to return to her home. She became a profound practitioner of Dzogchen and passed her teachings not only to her children, but to many other ordinary people who came to hear of her. Yeah, Rinpoche gave me his familiar look. I knew that something was expected, and soon. I also knew that playing coy and waiting to be asked would get me into more trouble than if I simply blurted out the first idea that came into my head. This is the third story in which Tsar Pautrel hides his identity, but here the reason seems different. The woman obviously has no great attitude problem to overcome. Rinpoche nodded in a kind of way that didn't really indicate a yes or a no. It was a mixture of head movements that looked like yes, no, maybe, and possibly other answers that eluded me. So what was the reason? he suddenly shouted. I fumbled around trying to think of what he could have been trying to teach her. Nothing came to mind. I was expecting Rinpoche to get angry with me for being no better than a bucket of abattoir slops, and the tension was mounting in me to a distinctly unpleasant degree. There was an uncomfortable feeling in my stomach that was making me feel quite queasy, and I started to feel as if I were going to vomit if I didn't escape and go lie down somewhere. This was not a good situation. It was bad enough that I simply didn't know what to say, but the idea of vomiting uncontrollably in my Lama's presence filled me with horror. Now, you'd have thought I'd have settled down as Rinpoche became less ferocious, or less continually ferocious. But now I had a situation of alternation. It seemed easier to handle when Rinpoche was homogeneously wrathful, but now he alternated and I found myself desperate not to lose his favour once it appeared that I had it. As I sat in this state of utter unease, Rinpoche, quite uncharacteristically, reached across the table and took hold of my hands. He sat there holding my hands for what seemed to be an outrageously long time. It wasn't an hour or even 20 minutes, but it seemed a very long time. Whilst this somehow wonderfully unexpected hand-holding was taking place, Rinpoche sat staring over the top of my head so that it was not possible to meet his gaze. As I sat there as rigid as a piece of guttering, it occurred to me that being tense was uncomfortable and that whatever was going to happen would happen whether I were tense or not. So I just let myself go floppy or the nearest thing to it. Gradually, I relaxed. I continued to relax. 
It seemed strange in some way that one could simply continue to relax and that every stage of relaxation seemed to be as far as the process could go. Then I'd relax a bit more. It briefly passed through my mind that if I relaxed any more, I'd lose control of my bowels or something. But nothing quite that disgusting occurred. I stopped feeling sick quite soon in the process and started feeling very airy and light. Then his eyes turned downward and met mine in a liquid movement for which words don't appear to be a suitable medium. The sensation was slightly threatening, but it didn't seem that I was irredeemably impelled to wind myself into a knot again. I could simply sit there. It was then that it occurred to me. Rinpoche, I ventured, Tsar Paltrow must have known that Ursel Drime had too much devotion, too much devotion at an emotional level, especially in view of the events that led to their meeting. Even not knowing who he was, she had fallen in love with him, and even at the Gompa, her feeling at the heart level was too overwhelming to be able to relate in terms of meeting Paltrow directly. Rinpoche smiled ever so slightly and poured out two beers. He then reclined, looking at me, in what could almost have been described as a benign manner, over the frothing tops of the glasses. He arranged his arms comfortably in a movement that indicated that I should continue. So, if he had told her who he was, it would have been impossible to have given her the transmissions and teachings he gave her while they were simply walking together. He simply chose to put her at her ease. This is exactly what Rinpoche had just done for me. He'd put me at my ease, and suddenly I realised that the same quality was right there in the story. Oh, yeah, Rinpoche enunciated his acknowledgement with peculiar precision. Maybe one day you will not be Tomyor and not too afraid of me? This made me burst out laughing. Maybe, Rinpoche, but maybe some of my fear is useful. Rinpoche pulled a mock frown at that point. How so? he inquired with almost a stringent rapidity. I don't feel that it would be good to be too relaxed in your presence. Not unless I found myself in the state of Rigpa. Oh, yeah, Rigpa, he laughed. Now, more coming? I guess I could try to get over whatever it is that winds me up so much. It would be better if I didn't sometimes feel as if I was about to be sick when I get stuck for an answer. Rinpoche shook his head and indicated the beer. We both quaffed. It was a warm day. Yeah, you really know all these answers, but you need to have courage in looking into what you think you don't know. Being a Tomyor does not protect you against the world. The conditioned patterns of the world will have an effect on your circumstances, whether you recognise them or not. On hearing this, I had something immediate to say at last. 
Yes, Rinpoche, I can see that. But there's a slight problem with the balance between devotion, respect and openness on one side. I guess in my case that turns into naivety or dim-wittedness. And then there's perceptive discrimination or intelligent observation on the other side. I guess that could turn into cynical scepticism, which would undermine devotion. Rinpoche grinned at me mischievously. That is your practice. I thought about this story often after that, and it kept revealing other layers of itself. When I began to accept my own students, I began to see how there was always a balance of confidence and doubt, devotion and cynicism, faith and scepticism, relaxation and tension cordiality and formality, respect and self-respect. These and a plethora of other balances were vital to the teacher-student relationship. Too much devotion is as much of a problem as too little respect. Both are unworkable, at least for me. Then there's the example of how Poutrell worked with Ursel Drime's level of devotion. It was too great for him to communicate teachings to her as Tsar Paltrel. And yet the very same devotion enabled Paltrel to turn her fear aside. I put this to Rinpoche when he'd told me the story and he'd replied, Yeah, every situation is workable. You simply have to understand each aspect of the situation and be prepared to be completely flexible beyond any consideration of your own preferences. Years later, whilst transcribing these stories, Kandra Dechen, my wife, asked, So why didn't Tsar Paltrel marry the lady? I thought about this question for a moment, and it suddenly seemed quite hilarious. You know, I replied, I really have no idea. It seems that questions about these stories never end. Rinpoche never asked me that, and the question never occurred to me at the time. Kandrodechen mused, maybe marriage might have prevented him from sleeping rough with unlikely companions. Right, I grinned, and thereby benefiting people in the way that was characteristic of his personality display. Candidate Chen laughed. That's obviously the answer. At this point in time, at least. <laughs>